Well, please turn back with me to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 1. And it'll be helpful for you to have just that first verse open. And hopefully, boys and girls, some of you might have the sheet with this verse on it to help you think about these words today. And uh, there's some space there. And maybe you can draw one of your favorite things that you find in the earth, one of your favorite things that God has made. And your sheet hopefully will help you to think about the verses that we're all going to think about together this morning. Genesis chapter 1 verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. There has virtually never been a time when everyone just believed Genesis. The impression you could easily get from some atheists today and indeed from some Christians today is that everyone everywhere had always believed what the Bible says about the creation of the universe Until that pesky old Charles Darwin came along with his theory of evolution. The impression you might have is that up until Darwin, no one was quite as clever as we are today. No one really studied science today. And everybody, everywhere in the world from the very beginning, just naively and unquestioningly believed Genesis chapter 1 verse 1 and everything else that the Bible says. Is that true? Not at all. There has virtually never been a time when everybody just believed the opening words of Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This has been a controversial statement, a statement that lots and lots of people haven't believed. That has been the case ever since Moses first proclaimed these words to the Israelites. And as I said earlier, uh, the first people to hear the words of Genesis would have been the Israelites as Moses led them out of slavery in Egypt and towards the promised land of Canaan, roughly 1,500 years before the birth of Jesus. The Israelites knew their history. They knew that their God was a great God, a powerful God, who had made wonderful promises to their forefather Abraham. But the Israelites have been slaves in Egypt for 400 years. And the Egyptians, just like all the other people of the ancient world, they had their own beliefs about where the world had come from and who had made it. The Egyptians did not believe that one God who had existed from all eternity had made absolutely everything simply by speaking it into existence. In fact, nobody else in the world believed that. By the time Moses wrote these words and then declared them to the Israelites, there were all kinds of beliefs about the origins of the planet and the universe. Almost everyone in the ancient world, for example, believed in Lots of gods and goddesses rather than in just one God. Unlike the God of Israel, these gods and goddesses weren't all powerful. Some were more powerful than others. Some were more good-natured than others. And in the ancient world, people believed that the, the force and the power of these gods, as they fought against each other, as they sort of rivaled each other for power and control, that, that's, that that force and power of the gods had simply sort of spilled over accidentally and exploded the world into existence. I wonder, does some of that sound familiar? And the reason I tell you all this, friends, is that 
We're not to be worried that Genesis has suddenly become an irrelevant book because of the current beliefs and trends of our world. We're not to think, well, if only Genesis had been written after Charles Darwin had appeared on the scene. Genesis was written at a time when lots and lots of people all over the world believed totally different things from what Genesis claims. Genesis is a book designed and intended for God's people living in a world full of other beliefs about the creation of the world. And so it has not suddenly become irrelevant. One preacher has said that when Moses declared the first words of Genesis to the Israelites, it may have been the first time that they had ever heard the truth about the creation of the world. They had lived in Egypt. And some of Egypt's beliefs had no doubt seeped in to the mindsets of God's people. But now instead of their minds (coughs) being filled with pagan myths, About this God or that God, Moses tells them about the one true God, their God, who had saved them out of slavery, who had made promises to them, who had promised covenant, steadfast, saving love for them, and the God who had created the world in which they lived and everything in it. The very first verse of Genesis gave the Israelites reason to trust their God and to trust his word, and it does the same for us. We live in a world, as I've mentioned, with competing claims and beliefs about who we are and where we came from and why we're here. We live in a world that more than ever feels chaotic and out of control. But the first verse of the Bible tells us about the one who is in control. Who he is, what he is like, what he has done and why we should trust him. So I want to pose two simple questions today about Genesis 1 verse 1 uh, and we'll take time to answer them together. First of all, what does this verse tell us about God? What does this verse tell us about God? Uh, The word God dominates Genesis 1. It appears 35 times between chapter 1 verse 1 and chapter 2 verse 4. And so it's obvious uh, what or rather who Moses wants us to focus on as we read this chapter. Genesis is not a 21st century biology textbook and it's not trying to be. It's not even in the first place a history book, though it does tell us facts about what has happened in the past. But first and foremost, friends, this is a book about God. Not primarily about us or the earth or the universe, but God. In the beginning, God. Three things that this first verse And the rest of Genesis chapter 1 shows us about God. First of all, we learn here that God is. Quite simply, that God is. The Bible does not spend any time trying to convince us that God exists. It just states the truth that he does exist. In the beginning, God, before humans ever existed, God existed. Before the universe existed, God existed. He has simply always been and he always will be. The name or in some ways it's a bit of a title given to God throughout Genesis. Uh, The words just translated God in our English Bibles. But the word is Elohim in in Hebrew. Elohim. It literally means the strong and mighty one or the sovereign one. The one who is in control with majesty and power. He has always been. 
and he always will be. And it's very hard for us to conceive of someone who has always existed, isn't it? Everything about our experience as human beings is temporary and limited. We had a beginning, we will have an end. Relationships begin and relationships end. Jobs begin and jobs end. Seasons begin and seasons end. But God has had no beginning and he will have no end. He did not have to grow or develop physically or mentally. He had no defects or character flaws that he had to work on and change. He simply always existed as one perfect, all-powerful, eternal God. And of course the Bible makes clear to us, and it's even hinted here in the very first verses of Genesis, that this one God has always existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have always existed co-equal, co-eternal, in a perfect fellowship of unity and love together. This means, by the way, friends, that God did not make us because he needed us. God did not make us because he was lonely or needed a friend or needed someone to enjoy him. God made us because he wanted us. He made us because he wanted us. He wanted us to enjoy him. He wanted us to enter into and enjoy his presence and his love and his creation, as we'll see. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit always were and always will be. Jesus once said, before Abraham was, I am. And so God, the Father, Son, and Spirit have always existed and always will. God is. But the second thing that this verse tells us about God is that he is all-powerful. He is all-powerful. The verse says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The Hebrew word there for created is a word that is only ever used in the Old Testament to describe things that God does. Uh, Human beings are described as forming things or making things, but only God in the scriptures Creates. One writer says this word describes a special activity that can only be accomplished by God that results in something brand new, something that couldn't have existed if God hadn't made it exist. And what was it that God made to exist? What was it that He created? What new thing? Well, verse 1 says, the heavens and the earth. That's a summary way of saying everything. Everything. When you see the word heavens in the plural in your Bible, so heavens with an S, uh, it means everything above us. The sky, the upper atmosphere, space, the solar system, the galaxies, the, the outer universe. God created all of that. He created Mercury, Venus, Mars, all the rest of the planets in our solar system. He created the billions of billions of stars that dot our night sky. He created the unseen particles and far off galaxies that are still fascinating and bemusing scientists to this day. And he created the earth, this beautiful place that is our home. All of it. He created the Moon Mountains. And the county down coast. 
He created the Giant's Causeway and the Antrim Hills. He created the Grand Canyon and Mount Everest. He created the, the caves at the depths of the oceans. He created the thousands of miles of jungle and forest and the thousands of miles of desert. God created all of that and everything else. Is it any wonder the psalmist says in Psalm 113 verse 5, Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? Psalm 89 verse 6. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord, a God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him? Friends, the power of our God is unmatched, unrivaled, awesome, incredible, beautiful. God is all-powerful. And then the last thing, there, there's much more we could say, no doubt, but the last thing to highlight to you from Genesis 1.1 is that God is distinct and separate. God is distinct and separate. Genesis 1.1 tells us a simple but crucial truth that there is the creator and there is creation and that they are entirely distinct and separate from one another. Another way of saying that God is distinct is saying that God is holy. He's holy. He's entirely separate from his creation. He has made everything, the trees, the oceans, the grass, the animals, and of course human beings. And all of that creation is wonderful and in the first instance was beautiful and perfect. But it was never and it is not now divine. Creation is not part of God. And again, friends, I need to emphasize this wasn't the popular belief when Genesis was written. And it's increasingly not the popular belief of our world today. What the ancient peoples of Egypt or Mesopotamia believed was that multiple gods who themselves had had a beginning. So they weren't eternal. But the Egyptians and others believed that multiple gods made the world pretty much by accident. The ancient peoples believed that the power of these gods resided in creation itself. And so the created world itself was, in a sense, divine. It was godlike. The Egyptians, for example, believed that the river Nile was sacred, that it had divine power, and they worshipped it. Some people worshipped the sun or the moon, or certain plants or certain animals that they believed had. God-like powers. And whether we realize it or not, this kind of belief is actually still very popular. In some ways, it's becoming increasingly popular again today. There's an increasingly popular belief today in what one Christian writer has called oneism. Think of a circle, one. That the, the, the trees, the sky, the birds, the animals, and of course, human beings... We are all one. We are all in the circle. One Disney movie famously has called it the circle of life. That everything is equally important. Everything is equally powerful. That there is a sort of a divine spiritual force that flows through every living thing. And even in some cases every inanimate object. And this is a very popular belief in our 
in, in our secular world today. Yoga, for example, and some of the meditation practices that go with it, is more popular now than perhaps ever before. The word yoga means union with God. In the words of one writer, the goal of yoga is to promote the union of the individual soul with the greater soul. The greater soul being sort of spiritual power out there around us. The greater soul is not a personal being, but it's a spiritual force, what the Hindus call deities or gods. So basically the point of yoga, if not, not perhaps the physical stretches, but the spiritual side of it, is to tap into the spiritual force of creation. These kinds of beliefs are also very popular with those who head up some of the most influential and prosperous big tech companies in our world today, like Google and Amazon. Companies like Google and Amazon have become very fond of sending some of their employees out into the Nevada desert for a few nights each year for what's called the Burning Man Gathering. Some of the activities that take place at a Burning Man Gathering include orgies, art shows, and building an 80-foot totemic statue before setting it on fire. The Burning Man website asks, Do we as conscious beings exist outside of nature's sway, or does nature's force inform the central root of who and what we are? goes on, Only from immediate experience. Not ideologies that stand outside of the created world. May we get a sense of nature as it moves within us and flows through us. Some of you might be thinking, that sounds like a load of waffle. And in some ways it is. But really what they're saying is, don't look outside the natural world for a sense of purpose and identity. Don't look outside the universe, the created world in which we live. Don't look outside the circle for spiritual power and spiritual authority. Just look within yourself and look to the world around you. It's a belief system that leaves out the creator and focuses us only on the creation. And in the face of all those lies, friends, Moses tells us plainly here, There is creator and there is creation, separate from each other, a holy creator and a beautiful creation. There is God and there is everything and everyone that God has made. He loves us, he cares for us, he cares for everything that he has made, the Psalms tell us that. But he is not like us, he is holy, he is holy in his power, he is holy in his character. He is all-powerful. We are not, and the trees are not, and the birds are not, and your pet dog is not. And this belief in creator and creation is actually the basis for science. This is where science came from. If you go back far enough, it came out of a firm and fervent belief that God has designed and provided a perfect world for us to explore and understand. God has set the earth on its axis. He has fixed the stars in the skies. He has set the boundaries for human and plant and animal life. He's created a world for us to go out and understand and explore. And we can do that knowing why it's here and who put it here and who made it. 
We can explore it and understand it knowing that it's a gift from a holy, powerful creator God who made it all. And so three things that Genesis 1 tells us about God. It tells us that God is. He's eternal. Tells us that he is all powerful. And it tells us that he is holy and distinct and separate from the world in which we live. Well the second and final question that I want us to think about from Genesis 1 verse 1. Is how we should respond to this God. How should we respond to the God who has created this world and everything in it? And two responses at least to think about together. And the first way we should respond to this God is in worship. We should respond in worship. The word worship comes from the word worthy. If someone is worthy of your praise or your attention... And day after day, we all give thought and interest and praise to those people or those things that we think are worthy of praise. Uh, Hopefully, boys and girls, you all remembered that today is Mother's Day and you remembered to uh, give your your mum some some gifts, perhaps, maybe uh, some of her favourite foods or some flowers because they're worthy of some love and care and people saying thank you to them for all that they do. A few weeks ago, Captain Sir Tom Moore died at the age of 100 in hospital. It was headline news across the country. Why? Because this elderly gentleman had inspired so many people during the first lockdown. You remember how he walked around his home to raise money for the NHS? Sir Tom received 25,000 birthday cards on his 100th birthday. More than 25,000 people deemed him worthy of their love and their support and their thanks. Some of us are willing to spend the better part of two hours watching our favourite rugby or football team play a match because we believe them to be worthy of our attention. Some of us are willing to spend hours and hours reading the words of our favourite authors or listening to the music of our favourite musicians because they're worthy. Look Look what they've done, look what they've achieved. And none of that is necessarily wrong, by the way. But the question is, who is most worthy of our time, our interest, our praise? Who has done the most? Who is great enough for us to have him talk about him and think about him and study him and praise him? Friends, there's no competition. It's the God who made the heavens and the earth, who simply spoke And everything came into existence. And again the Psalms are crammed full of praise. For the world God has made. For God himself who made it. Psalm 148 verse 5. Let the heavens praise the name of the Lord. For he commanded and they were created. Revelation 4 tells us that Jesus is being worshipped this very minute in heaven. Among other things. For the world that he created. Revelation 4.11. Worthy are you our Lord and God. To receive glory and honour and power. For you created all things. And by your will they existed. And were created. See friends we all. Whether we realise it or not. We all naturally worship someone or something. We tend to put someone or something at at the centre of our lives. Something that gives us a sense of 
purpose and identity. Something or someone that excites us or attracts us. That causes us to pour out praise. You're going to do that whether you realize it or not. But Genesis 1.1 tells us that our great God is most worthy of praise. He is most deserving of our worship. Because he created the heavens and the earth. Let me ask you this morning, is your, mar- is your life marked by worship of your creator? Is worship of this great God not just a priority, but the priority in your life? Is it where you find your life's meaning and purpose? This is why we, as a denomination, fought for the right for churches to be allowed to keep meeting in some form week to week for those who are able to come. Because the purpose of the church is not in providing activities or maintaining buildings or even in, in, in socializing together. The purpose of the church is to publicly gather to worship the name of the God who has made the heavens and the earth. It's our duty and it's our joy. And this is the problem that atheistic evolutionists have yet to answer. If we're only here by fluke chance, if there is no God, if we're just atoms spinning around for a few decades before we go into the ground, what's our purpose? What's the point? Of course we can find a certain degree of joy and satisfaction in our work or in exploring the world or in our relationships or in our hobbies. But all of those things are temporary and passing. Ultimately, why should I care about anyone or anything other than myself? Why should we have been so careful this past year to protect human life, to keep our distance, to protect the vulnerable, to protect the health service? Why would we bother to do that if we're all just stardust here today and gone tomorrow? What a dark and depressing and pointless existence we would have if that were only the case. But instead, Genesis 1-1 gives us our purpose, our reason for worship. God created the heavens and the earth. How should we respond to this God? Not only should we worship him, but finally this morning, we should trust him. We should trust him. As I've said already, Genesis isn't a science textbook and it's not trying to be a science textbook. The Reverend Donnelly has said, Genesis doesn't have any quarrel with science. Science and the Bible, both properly understood, are friends, not foes. But Genesis 1 isn't trying to give us a scientific explanation for creation. Ultimately, friends, creation is, was a miraculous work of God. But it's simply telling us the fact of creation. It's telling us that God, by his miraculous power, spoke And the world was made. And this is something we believe by faith. We believe it by faith. The writer to the Hebrews says, Hebrews 11 verse 1, Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. We don't necessarily see with our physical eyes how this is possible. We don't fully understand how God brought the world into existence out of nothing. But we believe it by faith. 
Hebrews 11 verse 3, we read it earlier. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not, was not made out of things that are visible. And someone might say to you, you're basing your whole life on a leap of faith. Yes, and so is everyone else. Everybody else, atheistic, agnostic or outright pagan, is living their lives on the basis of some form of faith, whether they admit it or not. The atheist has his or her faith in naturalistic evolution. They're believing, foolishly and wrongly, that everything that exists came from no one and nothing at all. They're willing to break one of the basic laws of scientific discovery, that everything comes from something. They're willing to break that law to avoid believing in God. We believe that everything came from something, someone, God. We believe that not only because the created world shows clear evidence of design, not only because Genesis 1-1 tells us plainly and simply that God created the world, but also because God did something even more radical and shocking than that. The God who created the world entered into our world came and walked among us, spoke to us, and ultimately came to save human beings. The God who spoke the world into existence, who formed the first man from the dust of the earth, became a human being himself. The God who spoke the trees into existence, came and died nailed to a tree, taking the punishment for our sin on himself. His name, of course, is Jesus Christ. We read what Paul said about him earlier, Colossians 1.15, that Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn, that means the ruler or the inheritor over all creation. For by him, Paul says, all things were made. Jesus Christ did not begin his existence as a baby in Mary's womb. Jesus Christ, as God in his, in, his, uh, in his deity, had existed from all eternity and then came into human existence on earth. And since he was willing to come into this world and offer himself up for our sins, don't you think that he is most worthy of our trust, our love, our worship? As one preacher has said, in those moments when you feel like you face a mountain of worry, do you put your trust in the one who made the mountains? In those moments when you feel like you're drowning in a sea of sorrow, anxiety, do you put your trust in the one who made the seas and the oceans and who holds the depths of the oceans in the palm of his hand? When the anxieties and uncertainties of lockdown tempt you to utter frustration or despair. Remember the words of your creator in Matthew 6:26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? God made the mountains, God made the birds, God made the grass of the field. If he cares for all of them, and he does, how much more do you think he cares for you. You are not stardust. 
You're not a random assortment of molecules and matter. You're the pinnacle of the creation of the creator God. And there is nothing in his creation that he cares more about than you. He deserves our worship and he deserves our trust. You might say, well, where exactly does Genesis 1.1 invite us to trust in God? Well, it's hinted to us, of course, it's fleshed out in the rest of the Bible very clearly, but it's hinted to us in that word beginning. In the beginning, God created. And throughout the Old Testament, that word for beginning is very often paired up with another Hebrew word, end or ending. If something begins, it also ends. And the Bible makes very clear, friends, that God is working to a plan. He's working to a fixed schedule. His creation had a beginning and it will have an ending. Isaiah 46 verse 9 says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning. Likewise, in Revelation 21 verse 6, the Lord Jesus declares, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Friends, God created his world with a purpose. He has worked out that purpose in Jesus Christ. He has provided all the evidence we need to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who entered into this world to redeem this world, to redeem us from our sin, and even to redeem creation itself from the curse of our sin, so that we would enter into existence someday in a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth that Jesus Christ will one day create. Ultimately, the ending that is coming will only be a new beginning when Jesus recreates this world. And so Genesis 1 verse 1 invites us to trust in the God who in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. Is your trust in this God today? We can put up all the arguments we like. We can go back and forth with atheistic evolutionists about this or that. It comes down to a matter of trust. Eternity is written on your heart. You need to put your faith in someone. Put your faith in the God who made this world. And so this first verse of the Bible tells us about a God who exists. A God who is all powerful. A God who is holy. And a God who deserves our worship and our trust. Amen.